Listen, church, I'm thankful to be with you this morning. What we're going to do, I'm going to open us in prayer. I'm going to invite you to sit down after we pray. And uh, man, we're going to jump in. I'm excited for the word this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, it's so good to be in your presence. It's so good to be in your house. And so, Lord, right now, as we just take a moment to reflect on your goodness, as we take a moment just to think on how good you've been to us in spite of who we are, Lord, I pray that your presence just fills this place. Lord, I'm asking you today that you would speak through me, that you would hide me behind your cross. Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. Lord, that your name would be glorified. And Lord, we do pray these things in your awesome, powerful name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thankful to be with you this morning. Um, I was, I was uh, told to make it clear that Pastor Malcolm is working today. <laughs> he is actually at Fairview right now. He's preaching at Fairview. Uh, and so y'all be praying for him this morning and I'm going to be pr- uh, preaching here. Uh, you might be thinking, I wish you had done it the other way, but that's fine. Okay. I, you know, whatever. Uh, but I am thankful to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm thankful that I have these opportunities. And some of you might be watching and, and, and looking around and see this shirt. A lot of us have been wearing this shirt this morning, the Save to Serve. And this is a big push to try to uh, recruit some volunteers because we have Easter coming soon. And uh, that's always a big weekend. That's always an opportunity for people who don't normally come to church to come to church. Uh, it's an opportunity for people who, to invite people to come to church. And because of that, we always need more volunteers because we have an influx of people. And we're going to three services this year. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but things are starting to get a little back to normal. Uh, and we're starting to see a little bit more uh, people in attendance on Sundays and things like that. And that's great. That's what we want to happen. But we need some volunteers. Uh, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but you were not saved so you can sit sour and soak. You were saved to serve. Okay. And so we're going to encourage you and ask you and plead with you to come sign up to be a part of what we're doing here at Temple. There's all kinds of opportunities. You have this little doohickey. All right, that's called a QR code for us people who are not in the know. Um, and you can use your phone to scan that code and it'll take you to all the places you need to go to sign up. But if you're old school, here's what you got. You got a card. All right. Because some of us is old school. And on this card is a place for you to fill out, put your information, and all that good stuff. And you can drop this off at any of those desks. You can drop it off at 401. You'll see them at the different foyers. But you can either scan one of these QR codes with your phone. Some of you might have to actually download an app called a QR scanner. Or your, your picture, uh, your camera will automatically do this. But anyways, please do this. Help us out. We want to be a blessing to everyone who comes and visits us uh, here at Temple. Listen, church, I'm going to read to you from one of the most scandalous books out there right now. This is a book that has been taken off shelves, a book that uh, has serious propaganda in it. It's called Dr. Seuss. (laughs) If you've been keeping up with any kind of politics, you know what I'm talking about. If not, then uh, you fill you in later. But I believe there's some uh, wisdom in Dr. Seuss in this particular book. Oh, the places you'll go. And so if you don't mind, I'd just like to read a quick excerpt from Dr. Seuss. I, I promise you we're going somewhere, okay? Would you want to see the pictures too? Okay. <laughs> oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to new heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and soon you'll take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go... You'll top all the rest, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. 
I'm sorry to say, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. You can all get hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly on and you'll be left in a lurch. You'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. I wonder if that might resonate with some folks this morning that sometimes find themselves in a, in a predicament that they can't quite easily undo. They feel overwhelmed. They feel like life is just taking them and throwing them around and they feel a little overwhelmed at times. I wonder if maybe that resonates with some of us in this place. Maybe not in this particular season that you're in, but maybe in a previous season you just came out of, you just felt like, man, that, I feel like I got beat up. I felt like I was thrown in a wash machine and then hung out, dry, uh, hung, out to, hung out wet. Well, you're in good company because we're going to be in Psalm 46 today. So I encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 46. And... Um, I'm going to try to do my best to unpack all that this wonderful psalm has for us. I'm going to try to take the the wisdom that one of my students, Miss Briley Pierce, gave me before I came up here. Miss Briley, as I was walking up here, said, don't embarrass yourself. I said, thank you. (laughs) It's good to have encouragement like that. (laughs) I learned a lot this past year. I'm sure you did, too. 2020 was a learning year for me. Uh, I learned a lot of different things. 2021 was a very kind of a kind of second stage of that learning. I, I learned in 2020 at the beginning of all of it. Remember how we saw everything unfolding in China and we thought it's not going to get here. I don't know about you, but I saw that. I'm like, ah, it's not going to happen here. All of a sudden we had our first case in America. And you're like, huh, that's just in New York. It's fine. Let's stay up there. And all of a sudden it started getting closer and closer. Then we had our first case in Alabama and people started kind of freaking out. Right. And all of a sudden, Coleman, Alabama had its first case, and lo and behold, you couldn't find toilet paper anywhere, right? You couldn't find, people started staying home and started cooking. You couldn't find people buying 72 ribeyes, like, like it's the end of the world. You know, couldn't find food, couldn't find anything. So I learned during that time that uh, when, when craziness happens, people go crazy. And I also learned in that time that, um, that quarantine has its limits. I, I enjoy being alone for periods of times, but there comes a limit where you're like, I need to see some people. Like, I don't, I don't like being isolated. I, I need some company. I need some, some fellowship. And so quarantine had its limits. And then I also learned that uh, I, I eat a lot when I'm bored. I don't know about you, uh, but, but uh, the quarantine 15 is real, all right? And uh, there wasn't a little Debbie safe within five miles of my home. I learned that. I learned that uh, church online is such a great tool, but it is a poor replacement for the real thing. I am so thankful we had the technology to stream and go online and all that stuff. But I, this right here, this is this right here is what feeds my soul. I'm going to be honest with you. And yeah, we can applaud that because I'm glad to be back. I learned that that uh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. As for some of you who have young kids and you're having to do virtual school and you're teaching your kids at home. There is a I don't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. My daughter is in fifth grade. My son's in second grade, and he comes home with math. I'm like, oh, easy. My daughter comes home, and this new math. I didn't know we had problems with the old math. Now we have new math, and now we're having to try to learn that. And I'm trying to teach my daughter how to do new math. And, and I'm, I feel terrible because I don't know how to do it. And she's getting letters home like saying like she needs a tutor. I'm like, I'm trying. Like, I don't, I'm doing her work. The teacher's saying I need a tutor. Um, but I learned I don't know a whole lot. And I learned also that life is so fragile. You see so many people who just 
pass from this life to the next so quickly and unexpectedly. And maybe, maybe in this room you feel like things just went a little crazy on you. Psalm 46, this is what the psalmist wrote. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. Selah basically means this pause, reflect, think on that. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. And here's that famous verse that I'm sure some of you are very aware of. You might have a coffee mug with this verse on it. You might have some kind of sign you bought from Hobby Lobby with this verse on it. But it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. This, this psalm, like many psalms and all the psalms really, are written from the perspective of some person who is experiencing some kind of warfare, some kind of spiritual warfare, some kind of physical warfare. This is kind of his song in this moment. All the psalms are written from the perspective of somebody who has been through something and has come through the other side. All the psalms are usually a, a psalm of praise or a psalm of thankfulness. And then there's some psalms where people are bitter and angry at God. This is part of the realness uh, that you'll find people. This is exposing their heart on paper, how they feel in the moment. And I think that's what, what makes psalms so relatable to us. But in this particular psalm, this psalm was written by King Hezekiah. Now, let me give you some background about King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And he had the Assyrian army coming against him. An army of 185,000 strong. And he's looking at his resources. And he's looking at his military power. And he's looking at his kingdom. And he's looking at the army coming against him. And he realizes the odds are not in his favor. He realizes very quickly, I'm going to lose this thing. And so he's in a predicament. And you can actually read about this in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. You can also read about it in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. But in the moment, he goes to Isaiah, which is the prophet. And he says, Isaiah, go seek God. Go pray to God that he'll help us. Because he knew in his own ability he was not going to win. So he, he said, Isaiah, please go to God on our behalf and pray to him. Because the Assyrians were a nasty group of people. They, were, they, were, they, were, they prided themselves on their ability to torture and kill. Matter of fact, they developed new methods on how to torture people, how to inflict the most amount of pain while keeping them alive the longest. That was what they wanted to do. And this kind of shed some light, too, on why Jonah, remember Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, and he says, nope, and he goes to Tarsus. Do you know why? Because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And so Jonah was like, these people don't deserve repentance and revival. They deserve judgment for what they do. These people are vile, and these people are nasty, and the Assyrian people need judgment. They don't need restoring. And so Jonah wanted to run and go away from that city because he knew God was going to bring repentance. And so we have this mighty city of, of, of Judah up against the mighty army of Assyria. 
And so he goes and he seeks God and, and asks Isaiah to pray on their behalf. In Isaiah chapter 37, verses 33 through 35. In verse 33 it says, Thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. This is Isaiah speaking. He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. In verse 35, he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. So this is what Isaiah says. He says, uh, Hezekiah, I went to the Lord on prayer for you. And this is what he told me. He says, there's not going to be an arrow that lands inside of this city. He says, there's not going to be one shield that comes up to this wall. He says, that king isn't going to step foot inside of this city. Now think about that. You're looking out there and you see a sea of soldiers and you're looking at what you have and you're thinking, <laughs> we're overwhelmed. This is too much. Now, this, this right here is so wonderful because what we find out later is he goes to sleep with 185,000 soldiers at his doorstep. The next morning he wakes up to find a field of corpses. During the night, an angel of the Lord comes and slew 185,000 soldiers. Hezekiah didn't even pick up one shield, one sword. He didn't fight one person. He wakes up the next morning and finds an army completely decimated because God came down on his behalf. Now, if that don't bring happiness and joy and some little bit of chill bumps on your arms, I don't know what to tell you. But look what he says in verse 7 of chapter 46. I can just picture this. I can just picture it. As if he wakes up in the morning and he steps out the gates, he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Salem. And it's as if he's turning to the city of Judah and he's, he's got his, all these corpses behind him. And he says, come behold the works of the Lord. Look what he says. Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear and sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Look what my God did. We were overwhelmed. We were overtaken. We were against all odds. But look what my God can do. That is the song of Psalm 46. A song of victory when you're against all odds. Now, that's not how Hezekiah felt the whole time, though. And so today's message is how not to get shook up when your world shakes down. And one of those ways we can not get shook up when our world shakes down is to remember that God gives us refuge when life comes apart. God gives us refuge when life comes apart. If you look in verse 2, he starts out and says, Therefore will not we fear, but then he says, Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Though the waters thereof war and be troubled, though the mountains shake of the swelling thereof, Selah. This is what he's saying. He's saying, God, in this moment, I feel like my world is falling apart. The ground beneath my feet is crumbling. The mountains are falling into the sea. The seas are raging. He's saying, I, as, the, as the ground is falling at my feet, I turn to the mountains for refuge, but the mountains are crumbling. So the only place for me left to go is to the sea. So I turn to the sea and the seas are raging. He's basically saying, there's no place for me to go. Every option the world has for me is falling apart. God, I feel like everything that couldn't shake is shaken. I don't know if you ever felt like that, where your world, we thought everything you put stock in, everything you trusted in, everything you hoped in, all of a sudden starts falling apart. And you're thinking, God, I don't know what to do. I don't I feel I feel abandoned. I feel like there's no hope. 
Every resource I have is, is gone. I wonder if maybe life has felt like that for some of you. Maybe your family has struggled financially during this time. Maybe people you loved has died and gone on before you. Maybe you can't turn on the news because every time you turn on the news, there's some kind of agenda or some kind of, uh, some kind of something, negative news being shoved down your throat and, and it just builds your anxiety and you feel overwhelmed like, God, make it stop. Maybe, maybe you have conservative beliefs, therefore you're labeled a bigot, or maybe you have liberal beliefs, therefore you're labeled a snowflake and you feel like I can't win no matter, it doesn't matter what I believe because people are always going to be against me. Maybe... Maybe you, maybe you feel overwhelmed because you can't sing in church in California, but you can go out and yell at each other in the streets. Maybe, maybe this world has just kind of feel like it's falling apart a little bit. And it works on your mind and it works on your soul and it starts affecting you spiritually. It starts affecting you emotionally. It starts affecting you mentally. And maybe maybe the problems you are experiencing has nothing to do with about what 2020 has brought, has nothing to do about COVID, has nothing to do about politics. Because I was talking to a young person not too long ago and I was just trying to make conversation. I said, how has 2020 been for you? And this person said, compared to what my family is going through, it's easy. I said, what's going on? He said, my mom and dad's getting divorced. I don't even see my dad anymore. And he's making terrible decisions, and I'm afraid he's going to end up killing himself because of it. This is an eighth grader telling me this. And to them, 2020 was a cakewalk compared to what their family's going through. So maybe there's times in life it just feels overwhelming. So what can we learn? What can we learn from Hezekiah? Because if we're honest, sometimes it feels like when we get to difficult places in our life, it's as if we hit the pause button and we just live in it. And we can't get over it. And we, it's like we keep putting it on repeat and repeat. And we just run it through our head over and over and over and over. And it's like you can't get past it. And you're stuck in this moment. And I want to I help you out with that. See, when I, I had surgery on my shoulder about six years ago. And I, this is before I came to Temple. And uh, I was working full time with ADT security. I was part time at a church there. And, and I, when I had my shoulder surgery, I couldn't work. I had, to, I had to be laid up at the house. And so my dad came over and he brought me a puzzle. Anybody in here like to put together puzzles? I don't. All right. So but I was like, I, I have free time, you know, so I'm just going to do it. And he brought over this puzzle and it was a really cool puzzle. It was like this 3D holographic puzzle. So you look at it from one angle, it's one thing. You turn to another angle, it's a different thing. I'm like, this is going to be fun. You know, let's do this. So I'm sitting at the table with my arm in a sling, and I've got all these puzzle pieces. I dump out the box, and it, I'm telling you right now, it looked like an acid trip. It, none, of the, none of the pieces made sense. I was like, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what is this? Because nothing, it, it, it was like two different images on one piece, and I'm like, this, I'm never going to put this thing together. And I'm looking at all the pieces, and I'm trying to sort them out, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting overwhelmed. And I'm like, this is, this is too much. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's an awesome looking puzzle on the box, but, but my joy went to despair really quickly when I started looking at the pieces. I'm like, this is going to be tough. But then I had to remember, I'm like, oh, I do have a guide, I do have a box, a big picture to go by. And I don't know about you, but there might be some times in your life where you feel like you're, you're just a bunch of puzzle pieces scattered on a table. And you're trying to make sense of it all. And you're struggling because you've got one piece in front of you and you're looking at it. And you're like, God, I don't know what we're going to do with this piece. But this piece is painful. This piece is uncomfortable. This piece is confusing to me, God. I don't know where I'm supposed to put this piece. Meanwhile, he's got the big picture. And he's saying, just trust me. I know exactly what to do with that piece. 
And so just put it in my hands. I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry. And so I want to turn to, again, Psalm 46, because we're going to look at what Hezekiah did in the moment he felt overwhelmed and outnumbered. Look in verse one. God is our refuge. It's funny how the very first word of the very first verse of the chapter of 46, he doesn't use fear. He doesn't use worry or anxiety or pain. The very first word he chose to use was God. Now, this is significant. This is significant because, first of all, he's establishing that he has a relationship with God. But the word he chooses for God is the word Elohim, which may not mean a whole lot to you. But there's 108 different names for God in all of Scripture. He could have chose a variety of names to describe God, but he chose Elohim. Elohim is the oldest name of God in Scripture. But he could have chose Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. He could have chose El Shaddai, which means the Lord Almighty. He could have picked uh, Jehovah Nisi, which means Lord my banner. He could have picked all these words for God, but he chose Elohim. It's a very proper name for God. But it's also the oldest name for God. This would have been what was used in Genesis chapter 1. It says, in the beginning, God, Elohim. This was the same word that when Adam took his first conscious breath, when he had his, his, his first thought, he was introduced to Elohim, God. In other words, what I believe Hezekiah is trying to establish here is when I'm in difficulties and my odds are against me, I have to turn to the one who was there from the beginning, Elohim, the one who has been there since the beginning of mankind, the beginning of history, who set all things into motion, who creates and sustains. I have to turn to him who is my refuge. Now, what is a refuge? A refuge is a place that's hewn out for safety. In the Old Testament, a refuge is always used in the context of, of, of a safe place in the midst of a dangerous in, uh, environment or atmosphere. People would seek refuge from rain, seek refuge from an enemy, seek refuge from the sun. Or it could also be a place of emotional or spiritual refuge. In Psalm chapter 31, you see there's a refuge for shame. In, in Psalm chapter 142, you see there's a refuge for loneliness. But he says, in the midst of my chaos and my troubles, I turn to a refuge has, which has been there from the beginning. And that refuge is God. Now, I don't know what you turn to in the moments of your chaos, but I'm going to tell you right now, what, if it's anything besides God, it's temporary and it's not permanent and will let you down every time. Some people turn to work. They just busy themselves with work. Well, I can tell you that's not going to be good enough. Some people turn to substances and alcohol and they're thinking, I'm just going to numb the pain for a little bit. Can I tell you that's not the answer either? Some people turn to relationships. They'll just drive themselves deeper and deeper into a relationship, trying to find hope, trying to find help in that middle, that, uh, that chaos. But I can tell you right now, that's temporary. It's not going to last. See, he's saying right now, he's saying only refuge I could find because my world was coming apart. I'm looking and I'm seeing nothing but defeat. And so the only thing I could turn to in the moment of this chaos was God, who is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And I love how he says that. Very present help in trouble. How many of you believe it's really easy to find God in the mountaintop? It's really easy to find God when the bills are paid and everybody's healthy and kids are making passing grades and everybody loves each other and marriage is doing great. It's really good to find God. You can find God easily in those moments. But let there be a past due bill come your way with no ways to pay it. Let, let, let yourself lose a job. And you've been working paycheck to paycheck to begin with. What if all of a sudden the person you love the most gets a bad health report? It's a lot harder to find God all of a sudden. But in this moment, he says, in the middle of my problems, 
God is a very present help. He's a very present help in trouble. Actually, the Hebrews would have read, wrote, uh, read it this way. He lets himself be found. He lets himself be found in the middle of your problem. See, here's the thing. God is there in our storm. God was the fourth man in the fire. And God was in the back of the boat during the storm with his disciples. God is present in your bad moments as well as in your good moments. He's not absent. He's not, he's not asleep. He's not disappeared from you. He's present with you in those difficult moments. And so he's saying God can be found in my good moments and he can be found in my bad moments. He's a very present help in trouble. See, I, I, I think about many times we associate light with God. God is in the light. God is always in the light. But if you read in Exodus, you find a moment where Moses comes down to deliver the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. And as he's doing this, there's all kind of lightning and thunder going on behind him. And the people are scared. And he say to, they say to Moses, Moses, you can talk to us, but don't let God talk to us lest we die. And so Moses communicates to the people of Israel from God to Moses to Israel. And then it says that Moses turns and he goes into the great darkness where God dwelt. That always, always stuck out to me. Because that just lets me know that God is not always just in the light, but he's sometimes in our darkness too. There's no place you can go that God is not. And so for anyone in this room who feels overwhelmed, who feels like life has just been kicking him in the teeth lately, can I say God can be found. So, I also love... Verse 2, therefore will not we fear. You know what the opposite of fear is? Faith. If you have faith, you will not fear. And so he's saying, because God is my refuge, because God is there and available to me in my time of trouble, because he is my strength, I don't have to fear. Now, this is huge for us. I don't know about you, but my daughter, my daughter is, is, a, is a scaredy cat. I love her to death, but she will check the weather Every night before she goes to bed, just in case there might be a storm coming so she can pre-worry herself. All right. I'm, I'm kidding. Every night she's like, Mom, it's going to rain at three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you'll be asleep. I'm like, mm, I might not. You know, like, <laughs> I might just stay awake till then. You know, she, so she gets herself all worked up and anxious. And so we constantly have to quote this verse. God is not giving you a spirit of fear, but a love, power and a sound mind. God is not giving you a spirit of fear, but a love, power, and sound mind. We have to constantly, that's like our mantra at our house. God is not giving you a spirit of fear. And so many of us live in fear. The biggest fear we live in is the fear of what if. We get ourselves worked up on, but what if it doesn't work out? But what if it doesn't get paid? But what if there isn't an answer? But what if we can't? And so we get ourselves so fearful of the word, what if? And God's saying, shut up. <laughs> Quit worrying about what if. I'm not giving you a spirit of fear, so just be quiet. <laughs> Let me put some meat on that bone for you. When the angel Gabriel came to make the announcement to Mary that she was going to be with child, you know what he said? He said to her, fear not. Now, I don't know if that's a big deal to you, but it's pretty interesting that the very coming of Jesus was stamped out with the phrase, fear not. And then, and then there's a moment where he's walking on the water to his disciples, and the disciples are looking at him from a distance, and it's raging, it's a storm, it's crazy. So in the middle of this storm, as he's walking out to his disciples, you know what he says? Fear not. Then there's another moment, he's in the back of the boat with his disciples in the middle of another storm, and they wake him up, and he says, why did you fear? 
And then there's another moment after the, resur- uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. They just crucified Jesus. The disciples are afraid. They're hiding in the upper room because they're afraid they're next. They might come for us now because we're his followers. And so they're hiding in an upper room somewhere. And then all of a sudden the resurrected Jesus appears in the middle of them. And you know what he says? Fear not. <laughs> and then 60 years later, we see John the Revelator on an island of Patmos, exiled. And here he is having this grand revelation. And in this grand revelation, he sees the cosmic resurrected Christ. And guess how he introduces himself to John? He says, fear not. Can I just say, if Jesus is with you, you have no reason to fear All right, fear not, child of God. Fear not. He has taken away your fear. He's taken away anxieties. He's taken away worries. You don't have to say, what if, what if, what if. Now, I don't want to be taken badly. I don't want to say, well, I actually have anxiety. I have depression. Listen, I know there's medical things, okay? I'm not trying to dismiss that. What I'm trying to dismiss is that we don't have to get worked up about the unknown because we can believe that God has it in control. We can say, God, thank you. Why? I don't have to fear. That's what Hezekiah says. He's looking at an army of 185,000. Could you do that? Standing on the top of your wall, seeing nothing but a sea of soldiers and saying, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I'm not going to fear. I'm going to go to bed. Would you be able to do that? (laughs) Right now, me, no. No. But he did. Did you know if you have God in your life, you're able to sleep at night? You don't have to worry about what's outside your door. You don't have to worry about the unknown and the unforeseen and the unconquerable. You can just go to sleep knowing God's got this. God, I'm going to go to sleep. You got this. I'll check it in the morning. <laughs> and we saw what happened in the morning. The victory was won. And that's what God will do for you. He'll fight your battle so you don't have to. So God gives us a refuge when life comes apart. Secondly, God gives us resources when life comes apart. Look at verse 4. It says, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms removed. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. Now, I love, this is such a contrast. We go from a, from a shaking ground and all this stuff. Now we're into the city of God where the river shall make her glad. It's like a total scene change. And in that culture, in that time period, people would build these massive cities around water because water means life. You've got to have water to survive. So they build these huge cities around where there's water. But, but Brother Willie, do you remember when he was in Jerusalem? Did you ever see a river in Jerusalem? No. 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 We went everywhere. We was at the Western Wall. We went through tunnels. We went all over the place in Jerusalem. I was in the old city markets. I went. I did not find one river in Jerusalem. That's a big city. That's a massive city for that time period. When he says the city of God, he's actually referencing to Jerusalem. And it's kind of of interesting. He says there is a river, the streams whereof, in verse 4, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. There is a river. There is no river in Jerusalem. It's very strange to have a city that large with no river. What I believe he's doing is he's projecting to what will come. Because we see, because we have this resource, your first thing is you have a power within, a secret power within. See, I want to fast forward to what I believe he's talking about. In John's gospel, John chapter 7, you have Jesus 
in the middle of Jerusalem, in the temple, he stands up at the festival of feast in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. And look what he says in John chapter 7, verse 38. He says, he, or, I don't know, we have that. Do we have that? Because this is important. We've got to have that. John chapter 7, verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, I, I, I think this is significant because he's in Jerusalem as he's saying this. Hezekiah is referencing that there's living waters that's coming out of Jerusalem, but there was no river. Here's Jesus saying, he that believes on me out of him shall flow rivers of living water. Let's keep on reading verse 39. But this he spake he of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which they that believe on Him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You know what He's saying? He's saying, listen, there's coming a day where there's going to be rivers of joy coming out of the city of God. For us in this room, we get to possess that river. It is the Holy Spirit. It is a resource of life. And so for every believer, you have been in the indwelling of the Spirit. He is now your asset. He is now your advocate. He is now what, the, what Jesus called the comforter. He is now with you, inside of you, for you, working in you. And this is an incredible statement that Hezekiah is making. He's saying, in the middle of my chaos, I have a resource within me that's going to help me through. And this resource is the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. God's power in us is a quiet power. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? A quiet power. Because men's power is loud. We think of diesel engines. We think of nuclear bombs. We think of heavy machinery. But God's power is different inside of us. God's power looks like us having peace when nothing around us is peaceful. It looks like us having joy in the middle of a heartache. It looks like surrender in a time of chaos. That resource within you gives you the power to have faith when everything about you is saying, be fearful. This is that resource that God has given you, that's in you. It's a power, a secret power, a, a quiet power, but you possess it, child of God. And not only does He give you that power, He gives you a person. He gives you Himself. He is that fourth person in the fire. He is the Lord Jesus in the back of the boat. But that's the second thing He gives us. He gives us a power. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. But you might be thinking like I think. I'm, see, I'm a pretty transparent person. I like to put my struggles on front street because I think that makes everybody relatable. But there's been many times where I'm thinking, God, if you're with me, I wish you'd hurry up. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? God, if you're here, do something. Like any time now. That's how I felt so many times. I had to keep re- reminding myself that God is not just the God of of time, but he's got a perfect time. And he does things in the right moment at the right time. And, and if you notice in verse 5, he says he shows up that right early. That right early. Now, now some of your margins might say the fourth watch. Fourth watch. In that time period, they broke down the night in four different time periods. You have from 6 to 9, that's first watch. You had 9 to 12, second watch. You had 12 to 3, third watch. Fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, let me put some, some meat on this bone. I've been a youth pastor for a long time, and I've done these very terrible things which are known as lock-ins. You know what a lock-in is? Anybody ever volunteered at a lock-in? 
It's terrible. It's terrible. The kids love them. It's terrible. Because what they do is you make, they make adults stay up all night long and try to function. And it's so hard. And so what I've noticed is the first watch from, from six to nine, everybody's doing pretty good. Like we're all energized. And we're like, yeah, this is fun. Let's play some basketball. And then from nine to 12, you know, you're still doing pretty good. Then from 12 to three, you get a little slower <laughs> and you start hurting a little bit more and you get a little bit more irritable. You're like, Mr. Andrew, can I use whatever? Go <laughs> you're like you just you pop off for no reason. But then the fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's so, it's so hard. You just want to cry. Like, like you just, you just want to go home. Like, you're so tired. You've got middle schoolers that are still, like, hitting each other with their socks for some reason. You're like, just stop. You just, you're so, and here's the reason why. Because physically, your metabolism is at its lowest between those time periods. Physically, you are at your weakest during those times. From three to six. The fourth watch is when the human body begins to shut down because it's like, it's time for bed. All right, so you start getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And this is why I'm saying this. Because God will always show up when you are at your weakest. He's waiting for you to just stop fighting. Stop panicking. Stop being frantic. And He's going to wait until you get to your absolute weakest. And then He's going to come to the rescue. And he's going to scoop you up and he's going to save the day. This is exactly what he did with Hezekiah. Hezekiah went to bed with an army he couldn't defeat at his doorstep. And he's like, God, I'm going to bed. You got this. And next morning he wakes up to an absolute defeat. And it's not because of anything Hezekiah did, but it's all because of what God did. If Hezekiah went out there and killed one man with a sword, then God couldn't get all the glory. And there's many times God is waiting for us to get weak before he comes. There's a, a Christian church planter and evangelist. He's a Chinese man named Watchman Nee. And this is what he said. He tells a story about how him and some of his friends went swimming one day in China. And they're all pretty good swimmers, but there's one guy that wasn't a very good swimmer. And he went out there, and it turns out the guy who wasn't a very good swimmer got a leg cramp. And he started, started getting frantic, started drowning. But not very far from him was a very, very good swimmer. And so Watchman is watching this one guy drowning while the other guy is just sitting there watching him. And he says, do something to the good swimmer. He says, but the good swimmer just watched. The man that was drowning was thrashing around, trying to stay afloat and screaming for help, but the good swimmer did nothing. Watchman said that he felt hate grow in his heart towards that good swimmer. The drowning man's voice began to get weak and the thrashing began to slow. And at the last possible moment, the good swimmer swam and grabbed the drowning man and pulled him to safety. This is what Watchman wrote. Even though the situation was now over, I walked over and voiced my angry view to my brother. I said to him, I have never seen anyone so selfish and love his life as much as you do. Think of the distress you would have saved your brother if you would have considered his needs above your own. But the expert swimmer knew his task a lot better than I did. And he remarked, had I gone any earlier, he would have clutched onto me so fast that we both would have gone under and drowned. A drowning man cannot be saved unless he ceases to be frantic and is utterly exhausted. And then he is able to be saved. I need you to hear something. God will come to your rescue, but you need to stop fighting first. You need to quit trying to win this on yourself. You need to quit, put down everything and just relax. God is coming to the rescue. And this is why I think verse 10 is so important. Out of all that we just read, this is the only time God speaks. And this is what he says. Be still 
and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. Now, if you're like me, this has always been a really good verse to refer to and and to kind of encourage you and everything else. But I've always misinterpreted because I always associate being still with stop squirming. And I've always been a squirmer, always moved around when I was a kid. I get pinched all the time. Sit still. you know. But I I just had to move. I, I was jittery all the time. That's how it was. But, but a lot of times being still, still doesn't really solve everything. Do you know you can sit still and still be anxious? You can be still and still be bitter. You can be still and still be angry. Be still and still be sad. Be still and still be fearful. Just because you're still doesn't mean you're actually doing anything of, of accomplishment. But, but this phrase, be still, in the Hebrew, when the Jewish people would have read this, they wouldn't have read, be still. They would, have, they would have read this, let your hands hang low. And you might be thinking, I don't understand what you're talking about. Let your hands hang low. I'm going to tell you right now, this changed my whole perspective of this verse. And I hope it will for you too. This changed everything for me. Let your hands hang low. Because we think a lot, when we talk about emotions, we use our hands a lot. When somebody's a difficult person, we say, that person's a handful. Right? We get, we get in a frustrating situation. We're saying, I'm just going to throw my hands up. When we're, when we're anxious or worried, we wring our hands. When we want to get in a fight with somebody, we throw hands. All right? Our hands have a lot to do with our emotions. And so when God says, let your hands hang low, you know what he's saying? He's saying, take the posture of just relax. Just, I've got this. And so many of us are busy with our hands trying to do something. We're busy with our minds trying to fix stuff. We're busy with our thoughts trying to figure things out. He's saying just, shh, let your hands hang low. I've got this. That's so hard to do sometimes, isn't it? To trust that he's got this because you're looking at something that's so hard. And you're thinking, but God, I can't, shh, I've got this. But God, how? Because I'm your refuge and I'm your strength and I'm a very present help in trouble. So quit fearing and realize I've got this. Go to sleep. When you wake up, I've got this. And I'm wondering in this room, some of you struggle with letting God get this. Here's what's so bizarre to me. All right, track with me for just a little bit. It's amazing to me how we can trust God with something as significant as our eternal salvation. God, I trust you that I'm saved. I trust you that the work is done. God, I'm placing my trust in you for eternal salvation. But I don't think you can fix my marriage. God, I believe that the work of the cross was significant. I believe your blood has washed me clean. But I don't think you can break my prodigal child's heart. God, I know I'm secured in heaven. I know you've written my name down in the book of life, but I don't think you can pay this bill. That's really how we look sometimes. We trust him with something as significant and special and so, so out, of, uh, out of grasp for us as salvation, yet we think we can't, he can't handle a couple things here on earth for us? Wow. If you can trust him with something as significant as your salvation, you can trust him with anything. So just... Relax. Let your hands hang low. He's got this. You can trust him. He is good. Now, for some of you in this room, I'm going to go ahead and invite our musicians up here. Because some of you in this room, you might be hearing all this and thinking, that's an awesome thing to know that I have God for me, God with me. He's a refuge. He's my strength, a very present help in time of trouble. I don't have to fear. Here's the thing. Everything that Hezekiah is talking about is found in Jesus Christ. 
He's found in him. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but this is the reality. You have, you have zero access to any of this without Christ. And so in this room, if you are in here without Christ, then you will continue to fight your battles by yourself on your own, on your own power and your own ability, and you will fail time and time and time again. But I can tell you and I can reassure you, through Christ, He will be with you. He may not take you out of the fire, but He'll be in the fire with you. And I want to encourage you, the only way you can conquer and have these things in your life is through Christ. And so I'm just going to make a final plea with you in this room. Anybody in this room who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. There's so many benefits of having Him as Savior. He's so much more than fire insurance. He's so much bigger than a get out of hell card. He is a refuge. And He is a very present help in time of trouble. And He will be your strength. And he will take away your fears and anxieties of the unknown because he is with you. And so I just want to plead with you, person in this room who doesn't know Christ, would you trust him today? Would you put your faith and your hope in him today? Will you make him savior of your life today? He's patiently waiting. He's calling. He's drawing you. All you have to do is respond. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand. Invite everyone to stand all around this room. Listen, I don't know what anybody in this room has been through. I'm sure there's some people in this room who's just gone through a really difficult season. And maybe you're looking back thinking, I didn't handle that the best way. Maybe this is a time for you to just kind of get alone with God and say, God, I'm sorry for trying to do things my own way, trying to do things in my own power. I just, God, help me trust you more. I know you're big. I know you're powerful. I know you're there with me, but... God, I just struggle letting go sometimes. So help me just let my hands hang low and relax and let me and just re- trust in your ability. Maybe this is a time for you to just get alone with God and thank Him for the way He took you out of a hard season. God, thank you for being there with me. Thank you for walking me through that because I don't think I could go through it myself. And I know you were there with me. So thank you, God.